All right, church, well, our reading today is from Psalm 9. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds, for he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hand. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. And the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. This is God's word for us today. If you want to come on up, this is Patrick Tetzloff, an elder from Grace Church. Uh, If you don't know, if you're here with us, and this is somewhat new for you, uh, Grace Church is our mama church, okay? Uh, Grace Church gave birth to Redemption Church. Uh, and so they really, uh, that's where I was. I went to seminary, was ordained as a pastor, and then our team sent out to start this church. And so it's just a blessing uh, to have you here. Uh, it's just been such an encouragement to see you step into serving as an elder and come and preach. This is now your second time. So mm-hmm. thank you, Patrick. I think it's just worth noting that these Sundays that we have guest preachers, whether pastors or elders from other churches, last week we had Brett Wendell from from Crossway, I, I see these, and I hope you see these too, as a, as a particularly strategic thing in, in God's work in our church, with our vision being uh, sincerely greater and much bigger than just our one church, but that God would use the gospel to redeem and gather people into all kinds of, of healthy churches where he's preached and proclaimed. And so let's just celebrate uh, Psalm 9 today, and let's celebrate the work that God's doing here in Redemption at Grace Church in Racine, at Crossway in Bristol, and, and in any number of other uh, gospel-preaching churches in our community. Thanks, Danny. Church, before we get into the text, let's bow our heads in a moment of prayer and ask for God's help. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you so much for 
calling us together this morning to worship you. And Lord, oh, do we need you. Lord, I need you. The church needs you. Lord, guide us this morning. Preside over my words. Let your truth sink deeply into the hearts of your people here this morning, Lord. We love you dearly, and it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, good morning, Redemption, and it is, it's really great to be back here. I'm just blown away by the feeling of being here at Redemption Church and seeing what God is doing here. Just listening to the fellowship before service and and hearing all the talk, and even the worship team was kind of struggling to get everybody to calm down because there was just so much good energy going on. It's just really amazing and encouraging for all of us, especially those at Grace, because of our relationship with with Redemption and with the DeQuistos. And church planting is hard work. And there is no guarantee for success. And it's really only through prayer, hard work, and God's blessing that redemption is thriving. And I just want to say praise God for what he's doing here. And Danny, thank you. Thanks for, for entrusting me with the pulpit this week, um, for inviting me back after the first time. That was nice. Um, <clears throat> some of you may have noticed I have a slight black eye. It's better than it was last weekend. And to keep the rumors to a minimum, I thought I should tell you the story. It's, it's kind of funny. So we have two dogs. We have a little dachshund named Charlie, and then we have a big Bernese mountain dog named Finley. So I came home last Friday and kind of knelt down to pet Charlie and Finley, not wanting to miss out on any bit of attention, came charging over full speed, lowered his head and cracked me right on the corner of my eye. And his head, I swear, is made of concrete. I mean, it's, he's 105 pounds and it's like a bowling ball. It actually staggered me a little bit. So. I, I do have a really nice black eye. In fact, I was telling my wife this morning, since this is only my third total time preaching and twice I've had a black eye, maybe it's my signature now. <laughs> so I was thinking maybe in the future if I don't have a black eye, I might wear a pirate patch, but I don't know. We'll, we'll see how that goes. So our, our text for this morning is Psalm 9, and I have to tell you it's been a very challenging text to wrestle through. We don't have a lot of background information on this psalm. There's really not much specific historical information. Um, the psalm is not referenced in the New Testament. We know the author's King David, but we really don't have a, any other direct context to work with. Um, we know Psalm 9 is a psalm of praise. It's located in Book 1 of the Psalter. And there is this interesting history, this relationship between Psalm 9 and 10. Um, Psalm 10 doesn't have a title, and in some older translations, it was actually merged with Psalm 9 into one. But the focus is different enough um, that the ESV and other modern translations have separated Psalm 9 and 10. And as I was studying and preparing for this message, one of the things I kept wrestling with was following the tense of the psalm, like what time period is David talking about? Because at times he seems to be 
pretty clearly talking about the past, but then there's also references to the present and the future. And I was really trying to wrestle through and figure out what is the primary time period that's in focus with this psalm. And I came to the conclusion that the answer was yes. That I think the past, present, and future are all in focus in Psalm 9. And what I want to do this morning is just walk through this psalm together and see how it compels us to praise God for his righteous judgment, past, present, and future. So this is going to be my main point. Psalm 9 helps us to praise God for his righteous judgment in the past, present, and future. So with that intro out of the way, let's jump into the text. The opening line says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. This makes it pretty clear this is a psalm of praise. David, who's often considered Israel's greatest king, was said to have a heart for the Lord. And verse 1 in Psalm 9 right away made me think of Deuteronomy 6.5, where it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Even in this opening line of Psalm 9, I think it presents a challenge to God's people as we hear how David is giving thanks to the Lord with his whole heart. He's not offering just thanks generally, but verse 1 continues, we see David is thanking God by recounting all of his wonderful deeds. And the original readers of this psalm would have been very familiar with Israel's past. They were recipients of God's blessing, his provision, his protection for centuries. They would have known Genesis, Exodus, Joshua, Judges, and they would have had so many stories to, to recount on how God has worked in their people's history. They would have been able to recount the life of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They would have been able to recall how the walls of Jericho came tumbling down miraculously with a shout under Joshua's leadership. And I think recounting the wonderful deeds of God is a really amazing way to tune our hearts to praise God. You know, as a little aside, I, I marvel at how God has used every single event in my life to draw me closer to him. I think some of you know, but I was saved just five years ago. And looking back, now I can see how God was working all along. And, and I'll just share one small example. I worked at UPS when I was in college and found myself sorting packages next to a guy named Aaron. He was a Christian. We became work friends, and we would pass time having these little debates on the sword aisle about faith and science and origins of the universe. And at the moment, I just thought it was kind of a fun way to pass some time at work. But now, looking back, I see God put a believer in my path and used him to move me one step closer to him. See, Aaron was different than the straw man stereotype I had created in my brain as to what Christians were like. Now I can look back and I can rejoice at those moments to see how God was, was drawing me to himself all along. And I think we all have personal stories like this. And sharing those stories about God, how God has worked in our lives is just a really great way to stir our hearts up to praise him. And in verse 2, David continues stating that he will be glad and exult in the Lord Most High and will sing praise to his name. In verses 3 through 6, David gets a little more specific and he praises God for his righteous judgment in the past. 
Listen to verse 3. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. The Lord's wonderful deed that David is recounting is the defeat of one of his enemies. And all through verses 3 through 6, we see a complete and total destruction of his enemies. It says his enemies stumble and perish. Their cities are rooted out. And they came to so complete a destruction that their very memory has passed. And we don't get the specifics, but it's possible David was recounting a great victory from Israel's past. Maybe Joshua 10, where we read how five kings were miraculously defeated when the Lord threw the enemies of his people into a panic, rained down giant hailstones, and stopped the sun. Israel's enemies had been turned back so many times by the Lord. And that's the real focus in these verses. The spotlight is on the Lord and on his righteous judgment. The Lord has held up David's just cause. The Lord has judged the wicked from God's righteous throne. The Lord rebukes the nations. It's ultimately the Lord purging the wicked and blotting out their name forever, as it says in verse 5. And I think we can relate because there's times where we just long to see God issue a ruling from his righteous throne. We long to see him condemn the wicked. You know, a great movie can help capture our emotions as well, especially when the bad guy is really bad. And you're just waiting for him to get it in the end. One of my favorites, a real cinematic masterpiece, a classic, 1985's Rocky IV. And you get a sense for this kind of emotion when justice is being delivered. Ivan Drago is just a great villain. He's portrayed as a heartless Russian with machine-like strength and precision. It's 1985, remember. This is the climax of the Cold War. And in the opening movie, Drago fights Apollo Creed in what was supposed to be a friendly exhibition bout. Apollo seriously hurt in the fight, and Drago responds coldly, if he dies, he dies. And Apollo does die. Rocky, seeking justice for his friend, agrees to fight Drago in Russia. And even the training montage makes you hate Drago even more. He's just surrounded by trainers. He's getting injected with steroids. He's got all this high-tech equipment. And in the fight, as you, as you might be surprised, Rocky takes a pounding round after round, but he just refuses to go down. The Russian crowd was initially hostile, and then they start chanting for Rocky. And in the end, with both fighters barely standing, Rocky finally unloads on the Russian, knocking him out, avenging Apollo. Yes, victory speech ensues. And Rocky IV just captures this joy that we get sometimes when we see a wicked character in a movie finally get the justice they had coming. And Israel's past and David's own life was filled with triumph over their enemies. From David's defeat of Goliath as a young man to numerous victories over the Philistines, David could be thinking about any of these past moments where he saw God's righteous judgment firsthand. But remember, David is recounting these events with a purpose, to call us to praise God and remember who God is. And in verses 7 and 8, David tells us, the Lord sits enthroned forever. This covers the past, present, and future. And God is not only sitting on the throne, but Psalm 9 tells us he's established his throne specifically for justice. So when God judges the world, he does so with righteousness and uprightness. And this is where the psalm seems to take a slight 
turn into the present. In verses 9 and 10, we're reminded that God is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And the mention of oppression and trouble, just after recounting some of God's wonderful deeds, kind of starts to shift the focus a bit. And present trouble that we experience can make it really tough for us to trust the Lord. But we need to seek God and be reminded of his character. God is the only perfect judge. His justice is righteous. God's the very author of right and wrong. And this knowledge, this wisdom in seeing God as the righteous judge allows God's people to be comforted, even in times of oppression. And I think it's so important for us to grasp this because God's righteous judgment and his justice operate on God's timeline, not on ours. And recounting past righteous deeds can stir up our, our hearts, but in the present, it stir up our hearts in the present, but maybe we've also been through in the past times of suffering and oppression or persecution. And, and when we think about our past like this, we may feel like God's justice has eluded us. You know, and at times, the core of our being just wants to cry out, this isn't fair. When I was a kid, I'd complain to my mom that something wasn't fair, and she'd, she'd often respond, life isn't fair. She was right, but it almost always made me mad. And we sometimes question God's righteous judgment. We wonder about his justice when it seems to us that we've been through something unfair in either the past or the present. I mean, look, look at current events. Look at Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. Exact numbers are hard to find, but some estimate that there's thousands of civilians that have died already. Just ordinary people going about their lives, caught up in a conflict they never wanted. Sometimes it just seems like life isn't fair. I found this quote from the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery. It says, Justice is often considered a synonym for fairness, but often God's justice does not equal what is fair, but what is right. A living example is seen in Job's plight. We know from Scripture that God is always just, yet what happens to Job isn't really fair. He suffers at God's will, and really there's nothing Job has done to deserve such a punishment. And these situations are hard from us, for us. When from our vantage point, things seem unfair in our past or present, our only choice as God's people is to put our trust in the Lord, knowing that he alone is righteous. So Psalm 9 reminds us where God is. He is on the throne, always and forever, past, present, and future. He judges the world with righteousness. Verse 9 tells us that the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed in times of trouble. Made me think of Psalm 18, verse 2, where it says, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. And we must, we must put our trust in God, cling to our rock and our fortress, reminding ourselves, as it does in verse 10, that it is those who put their trust in the Lord, those who seek him, those are the ones that can rest, knowing God is on the throne. And as God's people, we should continue to praise God, as David tells us again in verse 11. And our praises are in song, but we're also directed to tell. Tell among the people his deeds. 
And verse 12 closes out this section of Psalm 9 with a reminder that God is mindful of his people. God is the avenger of blood. He is the one that does not forget the cry of the afflicted. And this term, avenger of blood, it, has a, it would have a distinct meaning to the original readers. I found the following quote. In the Bible, an avenger of blood is a person legally responsible for carrying out vengeance when a family member has been unlawfully killed or murdered. The article goes on to look at the definition of avenge. The word translated avenge in Hebrew is related to the word redeem, reclaim, or restore. As a representative of God and the family, the avenger of blood redeemed or reclaimed the blood of a relative by killing the original bloodshedder. So indirectly here, these verses are reminding us that in this fallen world, in this present world, injustice exists and too often blood is shed. I mean, if there was no injustice and there was no bloodshed, we wouldn't need a righteous judge or an avenger of blood. God, unlike the flawed Rocky character, will perfectly avenge all injustice. God does not forget. And this transitions us well from the past to the present into what I believe Psalm 9 has been building towards. David's prayer for deliverance from a present danger in verses 13 and 14. Let's read. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. So there's some current situation, there's some present distress and affliction that David is experiencing at the hand of those who hate him. David's crying out for God to have mercy on him. He knows that God holds the keys to the gates of both life and death. And the gate, I think the gate is an image used in Scripture that doesn't hit us quite as hard as it would the original readers. So think for a moment of the significance of a gate in the ancient world. The greatest security from physical threats was inside the walls of a city with access controlled by a gate. A gate could mean the difference between life and death. David is crying out for God, crying out to God for delivery from the gates of death so that he could be in the gates of the daughter of Zion. And the daughter of Zion is frequently used in the Old Testament as a personification of the city of Jerusalem and its inhabitants. We don't know the specifics, but David does and is asking God for deliverance from a specific situation so that he may find himself in the gates of Jerusalem rejoicing in his salvation. You know, perhaps this present distress that David's facing is the nation of the Philistines. The Philistines were a consistent thorn in the side of Israel, and David faced them in battle multiple times. They were a relentless enemy. Listen to the following description. The Philistines occupied the fertile coastal area in the southwestern part of the land of Canaan. They were a nation of warriors, trained in the art of war from their youth, like the city-state of Sparta. Their location, coupled with their warlike attitude and desire to expand their influence in the region, made them ancient Israel's longest, fiercest, and most implacable enemy. 
King David and his army engage in no less than eight major battles with this militant nation. Now, the text doesn't make it clear what situation David is facing, but he is clearly asking God to be gracious to him in this present moment. But notice that David doesn't just ask for salvation from his current situation, but he asks specifically to be saved in order that he may again praise God and rejoice in his salvation. What a wonderful plea. God, please save me so that I may sing your praises of your righteousness and rejoice in your salvation. God, please save me that I may worship you. And in one sense, this is it. This is the center of the psalm and in many ways strikes at the very heart of why we were created in the first place. God created man, allowed man to fall, made a promise to Abraham that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. God allowed his people to be enslaved and then freed them from slavery. He blessed them with his presence, provided a land from them, protected them, all in order that his chosen people would worship him and magnify his glory. David's prayer, please save me, God, that I may worship you and bring you glory. David is praising God for his righteous judgment in the present because he knows God is in control. God is on the righteous throne. As we look at the final section of Psalm 9, verses 15 through 20, we have the future fate of the nations unfolded. The term the nations is used in a number of different ways, but it's typically portrayed in a negative fashion. A simple definition might be that the nations refers to, in the Old Testament, all of the different people groups who were not the nation of Israel. The nations often oppressed, attacked, tempted Israel, were used as an instrument of God's justice to punish Israel for idolatry. In a simple us versus them picture, us is Israel and them is the nations. We see in verses 15 and 16 that the nations end up getting caught in the trap that they made. Their unrighteous actions, their words and deeds, their worship of false gods, their attempts to wipe out God's people will all be used as evidence against them on Judgment Day. Verse 16, God has made himself known, and the wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. We're going to come back to verse 16 in a minute. But the fate of the nations is to return to Sheol, return to the grave, for they are not only wicked, but they have forgotten the God who made them. David's immediate situation is probably still in his mind at this part of the psalm, but he knows God, and he knows the ultimate fate of all the nations that oppose God. This brings us to verse 18, which could be read as a call for patience as we await God's future judgment. We're reminded, for the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. And I think sometimes when we read about the poor and the needy in Scripture, we we kind of jump right to money. And God does indeed have a heart for the poor, but I think what is in view here is the poor in spirit, those who recognize their need for God. It reminds me of the opening on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 3, where Jesus opened his mouth and taught, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, I think too often, church, we seek to neatly divide people along lines that are created by man. 
<clears throat> we want to define our own us and them, the poor and the rich, Packer fans, Bear fans, Chevy Ford, Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative, oppressed and oppressors, black and white, inclusive and exclusive, tolerant and intolerant. And we shouldn't do that. We, shouldn't, we should seek God and trust in him and not get distracted with man-made lines of division. The Bible, in the ultimate sense, tells us there are only two groups of people that really matter. It's God's people and everybody else. And Psalm 9 helps us see the division that matters most. It highlights <clears throat> group one, the nations, the wicked, those who draw innocent blood, those who work evil, those who forget God, the enemies of God. There's also group two that comes out in Psalm 9, those who trust God, those who seek God, the oppressed, the poor, the needy, God's people. Two groups, different descriptions, but at the simplest level, we have those who are God's people and those who are not. And as we recall God's wonderful deeds, we should remember how Israel became God's people. Were they better than other people? Were they more righteous? Were they more perfect? No. You can't walk away from reading any of the Old Testament and come away thinking that Israel was more righteous than the nations around them. What made them special is that God chose them. In Genesis 12, God simply reveals himself to Abram and makes a promise to bless him make him into a great nation, give him land, and promises that through him all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. God chose Abraham. God chose Israel. God chose David. God is a choosing God. But wait, people in Israel, they're sinners too. They disobeyed, they strayed, and God chose them, and he didn't choose the other nations? Well, that doesn't seem fair. And, and God's perfect righteousness often does not match our human concept of fairness. But it's essential that we understand God's character and his plans. In Exodus 33, Moses asked God to show him his glory. And in 34, 6, and 7, we read, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. God has steadfast love for his people. He's merciful and gracious. He forgives iniquity and sin, but he will by no means clear the guilty. And this is something I think the Old Testament readers would have struggled to fully understand. I'm not sure they could living on the other side of the cross. They would have recognized that those who place their faith in Lord, God's people, and they would have seen a difference with those who reject God and worship false idols. They would have seen the difference between Israel and the nations around them. But I think it would have been difficult for them to see how God could both forgive iniquity and sin, yet by no means clear the guilty. And, and let's back to verse 16 that we read through earlier, where it says, the Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. Oh, I think if David knew how the Lord had planned to make himself known, 
how God would execute his judgment, how he would square up his steadfast love and faithfulness and his perfect righteousness by having his perfect son go to the cross, would he have been amazed? See, God wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be perfectly just if he just looked away from sin. And he didn't. Because sin must be paid for. And there's only two options. First way, stand on your own. Stand face to face with the God who created you and face the judgment of God. And if you choose this option, you will be found guilty because you are guilty. Every one of us has sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. And not just death, but an eternity separated from God. An eternity of punishment for your sin. Worse yet, your own words, your own plans, your own schemes will be held up. And you will be snared by the work of your own hands without a word to say in your defense. The second way is through the cross. This is the way that God has made himself most fully known, how he executed his judgment. Jesus suffered and died on the cross to pay the price for your sin and mine. He rose from the dead three days later in accordance with the scriptures as proof that death had been defeated. And if you are in Christ, the record of debt for your sin has been canceled, stamped, paid in full by the precious blood of Jesus. And it's the ultimate expression of God's steadfast love for his people. The way to confess your sin, to trust in God, and to seek him. You can turn from your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ, accepting his wonderful deeds. Then you too can recount all of God's praises. And you as well can be in the gates of the daughter of Zion, rejoicing over your salvation. There's no other way. God does not brush over sin. Sin must be paid for. And that's it. You are either one of God's people or you are not. The only way in the narrow road is through the cross of Christ. And Psalm 9 closes with a bold call for God to act. Verse 19, Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. David is calling on the Lord to remind the nations that they are but men. And David may still have been thinking of his immediate situation, calling on the Lord to act on his behalf and judge his enemies, but we know in the ultimate sense that the, in the future, the nations will be judged. <clears throat> One of my favorite passages is Revelation 19. I'll just read a little bit of it from 11 to 15. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that nobody knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. The Lord has, is, 
and will make his righteous judgment known past, present, and future. And Psalm 9 calls on us as God's people to praise God for his righteous judgment on the wicked. And for those of us who are in Christ, we can give thanks to the Lord with our whole hearts. We can trust the Lord to be our stronghold. We can call out to him in times of affliction because we know the Lord sits on his throne forever and that he judges with righteousness. We can praise God by recounting Jesus' wonderful act of mercy on the cross and we can rejoice in our salvation. We can indeed tell people of God's wonderful deeds. Let us sing praises to God as we head into this week. Let's pray. Oh, dear Lord and Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the opportunity to share your word with your people. And Lord, thank you for the reminder of your perfect, righteous judgment, past, present, and future. And as, as we long for that final day of judgment, Lord, we just pray that you would continue to use us to sing your praises, to tell of your deeds. Use us in any way you see fit, Lord, to call your people to you. We love you dearly, Lord, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.